Welcome back to Ars Politica podcast. This is Stephen Wolf. So today I'm going to talk about chapter one of my book, The Case for Christian Nationalism. I will respond to some objections that I've heard, maybe give clarification of why I did this or chose this or that. A few episodes back, I talked about uh, just the introduction, focusing mainly on the method. I've received a lot of criticism about my method, and you can listen to that. I tried to stay away from the content of the book as best I could in that chapter. Um, But yeah, this chapter is, the title is Nations Before the Fall, What is Man? Part 1, Creation. All right, so why, I guess, uh, what makes this book a work of Christian political theory? is in part because I start from the question, what is man? I mean, there's also methodological reasons as well, but you read any kind of classic work of Christian political theory, usually they will start with kind of just talking about what is man? What is the nature of man? And of course, that should be obvious. You should start with some philosophical, you know, philosophical anthropology or Mine's kind of a theological, philosophical anthropology. You start with that because then you kind of know what sort of being man is, what sort of creature man is. And if you know what sort of creature man is, you can then derive, hopefully, what is good for him. And if you know what's, and that, that's in part, knowing what good, knowing his good is also knowing his social organization. Because man is not merely just a rational being or a being that thinks and can think abstract thoughts, can uh, can acknowledge and worship God. Man is also a type of animal in a sense. I know evangelicals get goofy when you talk like that. But it's true that inter- you're, you're an animal uh, with a certain kind of social organization. Uh, we're animals as, and have certain, uh, certain needs um, within society. You can think of other, call them non-rational animals if you want, and they have different types of social organization. So, for example, a bear. A bear is a solitary creature, as I understand anyway. And so they kind of live in a solitary world. They kind of keep to themselves. Uh, They might have their their favorite tree to do some back scratching, but they're generally social, uh, excuse me, solitary creatures. Another example would be like a carpenter bee, which I've been experiencing a lot the last month. <laughs> They've been boring holes into my deck, into my my goat shed, and we're trying to figure out how to deal with these things because they're everywhere. Everywhere you look, there's a carpenter or, or a would-be hole. Uh, they're also social creatures. Um, they're also, I, I occasionally do standoffs with these. They They'll stare at me, and I'll just look at them in the face and I'm usually the one who backs down, I admit. Uh, but they're solitary creatures and like bears. But then there's the honeybee, and those are extreme. Those are like the opposite, kind of interesting. Uh, the opposite, they're extremely collective beings and lack pretty much lack any, any sort of individuality. So those are the two extremes. Now, when you're asking what is man, and you say rational animal, we, we can talk about the rational part, but I think we also need to talk about the animal part as well. <clears throat> well, we, it seems, we are both social beings and individual beings. So we're, I mean, this really is the origin of so many of our political problems is in some sense we need each other uh, and we want to be with each other, but in another sense we want to be away from each other or we want to be individuals. So we want to be social creatures and individuals at the same time. 
Uh, this can easily be resolved. I mean, I'd say bears, they can just be satisfied alone and don't need anything else. Bees can be satisfied with having no individuality at all. Whereas human beings both need others, they need society, and they actually kind of want to be individuals at the same time. And from that arises all of our problems. But anyway, for this chapter, I don't talk about our problems. Uh, I talk about what we're like in the prelapsarian sense, that is prior to the fall. What is the human being like prior to the fall? Now, why would I start here? Because I want to identify what what our good is in in ways that are um, non-relative to sin. Okay, so you can think of we can think of things that are good, but they're only good relative or because of a fallen world. So I recently saw this thick book that was just about how you treat gunshot wounds. <clears throat> Literally, it was all about gunshot wounds, dozens, hundreds of pages, whatever. Uh, now, it's if you know how, if you're a doctor, emergency worker, or doctor, a nurse, and you know how to treat a gunshot wound, that's good. And by treating someone's gunshot wound, you're doing a good thing. But that exists, and that's good, only because we, we live in a fallen world. It would not exist. That good would not exist if it weren't for the fall. So even though there's there's nothing wrong with calling that a good thing, it's just not, it's a, it's a good thing um, only relative to the fact that there's a fall. I mean, the same thing would be like punishing criminals, like a law that has a, uh, like, like requires execution. If like murder requires, let's say execution in some sense, that would be a good, even though, you know, killing people ordinarily would not be a good thing, but relative to sin, it would be a good thing to do that. And so you can think of that as kind of a relative good. Whereas there is another type of good that we'd want to identify, which I, I'll call it abs- like an absolute good or something that's good in itself. And it would be good. It's good for man according to his very nature, to the very, his very being. So think of like a family formation, the natural family formation of one man and one woman having or expecting children. That is a good thing. And that's good uh, regardless of sin. It's good in the state of sin. It's good in when you know state of integrity or state of with uh, without sin and so that is a a good you can call it a good absolutely uh it's a, and it's not only a good i mean there's some goods you can think of like having i guess candy is, is a good thing good, tasting candy can be good but th- that may not exist or be actually good in in other situations so so the, the point being is like the there's a difference between like something that could be good but isn't necessary so like it's a possible good but there is also a necessary good, and I'd say a necessary good for man would be family formation. So it's actually not only a good if it may arise, but it's actually good as part of man's fundamental nature. And so those are the kind of goods I want to focus in on, not the possible goods that are kind of, you might enjoy some, I don't know, licorice or something, candy, but uh, but actually the, the the goods that relate to our ourselves as in a more necessary way. Okay. Uh, and why would I care about these things? Well, because that means that, that they would be for your good, not only in a prelapsarian state, not only in a state of sin and, and not only in, and, uh, well, I should say in a state of, uh, uh, you know, prior to grace in a state of grace, 
um, and in a state of sin. So all states of man. So this means that family, the family formation, the natural family is good in the prelapsarian state, in the postlapsarian state, and in the state uh, of grace. And that's why we do not affirm the idea that grace destroys nature such that it would destroy the family and there's no more family life um, for Christians. It's a good, and yet we want to say it's also a good in the prelapsarian world. Uh, and, and the point, the main point of the chapter is not just about the natural family, but also nations. So my argument is that according to the, the natural social relations of man, according to our nature as human beings, we will we would form distinct and separate nations. And we would affirm and we'd understand ourselves according to particularities that could be otherwise. That is customs, customs and culture. So there would be a diversity of culture. There'd be a diversity of peoples who have each having a distinct culture. And that would be according to our very nature as a human being. And so if that's nature, if that's natural in a prelapsarian world, what that means that the diversity of nations within our world now, despite the sin that occurs in nations and the sinful features content of nations, the actual formation of distinct and a diverse array of nations on the world is itself natural. Uh, and I'm, I make arguments uh, for this. Now, the, the, the main objection I received along these lines is really it was mainly just a matter of dismissal so they just people just dismissed the the conclusions as if i'm as if all i did was just assert them and they could just be dismissed as undemonstrated but i actually did attempt to demonstrate it with uh, and i and up front i gave these different principles a couple principles that would help us think uh think these things through I want to say first, though, that the idea of thinking about what our prelapsarian life would have been like is really not foreign to the tradition. I mean, everyone, it seemed almost everyone did this. I mean, when, when Luther, for example, said that there would be no civil government had man not fallen, I mean, he's theorizing about what that state would be like. When Aquinas would say that no, there would be civil government, he's theorizing about what that state would be like. And it seemed to matter. It does matter. Uh, I mean, if you, I mean, just in that case, I'll get to this more, but if it matters whether or not you think there would be civil government, I mean, is it natural for you to have a civil ruler over you? If it is, that actually matters. We'll talk about that. But people did this all day long, even like, so Calvin theorized about it a little bit. Uh, there were there was talk about whether or not you'd eat meat. So would there be death? Is us eating meat at the dinner table, is that a relative good or something good? Like, is it something we would have enjoyed prior to the fall, or is this like just permitted? Like, do the do the the, veg, the vegetarian Christians or whatever, you know, there's a few of them out there. Do they have an actual point that well, grace according to grace, we shouldn't eat, uh, we we should we should only eat vegetables? Are they right about that? So all these things kind of matter, uh, and and people did theorize about the prelapsarian state for good reason. All right. Now, what's been frustrating about the reviews is that they they never, not once, they, they are very quick to say I speculated, but they don't actually deal with the arguments that I make. So one of the arguments, one of the principles I say up front, and I mentioned already, 
was how do we relate to certain things? Like how do we relate to friendship in itself or parental love or worshiping God? Is worshiping God something we we do post-fall just relative to sin? Or is that something about us as human beings as naturally constituted that we ought to do that and we would do that? Well, of course, we would do that. Adam and Eve would have worshiped God. Now like we can debate about what the content of that worship or what how the garden relates to that all day long. We could debate that. But uh, in principle, though, man would worship God. I assume there'd be some kind of friendship. I also assume that you would have loved your children more than someone else's children uh, within the prelapsarian world. I assume you would have eaten and, and other things and worked and that sort of thing within uh, the, the prelapsarian world. So this means that those are goods in that state, which means that when we think of those goods in this state, in the state of sin or state of grace, we can think of them as actually good according to our nature, not goods relative to sin. But we can think of other things, and I've already mentioned them, that would be due to sin. So like medicine is probably a good example. Laws that punish criminals, those would be another example. We'd think of those as good, but they're good relative to uh, to sin. I mean, you think of nothing like uh, husbands protecting their family because they do that because of sin in the world. But we, I mean, usually complementarians, the first thing you're supposed to do is, you know, protect your family. Now we'll talk about that a little bit more later. So I think we we have a principle to think through these things. Everyone would affirm, I think, at the very least, that husband, the, the, that there would be natural family formation of one man, one woman with children. I think everyone would now i guess there's questions of would everyone get married but i think generally speaking I, I think almost universally people would say there would be family formation and almost everyone would uh, get married it's not hard to think through some of these things and, and and what i'm what i do from here is i say okay here's all these sets of goods here's what man would be like and now if we take those as premises, how can we then proceed in an argument logically about what social organization would be like? So we can think of individuals. If we can think of how individuals are and some of these goods that we can think about, what would it be like um, when we form, what, when we, if man had not fallen but spread across the earth? So that's one, that's one, of, the, one of the key principles. And one of the things I focus on is this idea of uh, innate versus acquired goods is it like the matrix matrix where like you you become like pre-downloaded with knowledge of these skills not only the knowledge but the ability to do these things are you born with the knowledge to be a carpenter are you like born by your nature to do these things uh or are, are your skills acquired over time and i think as we think through this when we when we relate to someone who's like a, a master at some trade or some craft we praise them as being masters because they've devoted the time and attention to acquire those skills. And it's not a sort of tragic skill that, oh, you had to, you had to put effort in there to, to learn something. No, it's that th that was actually good. The process of maturity was actually something that was good. And for that reason, I argue that we in the, the prelapsarian state would have acquired a lot of our skills. You know, I, I like walking, for example, would would some would a kid be born be able to walk and talk and do all these things uh, for him or herself? I don't think so. So the idea that there's an immature being does not mean sinful being. Um, and this is 
the, the idea, I mean, I, I don't know if anyone, I'm sure people have talked about that before, but the idea that there's there's an immature, a certain immaturity or kind of a, like d differences of degree is pretty common. So, I mean, Calvin will affirm that there's superiority and inferiority between people in the prelapsarian state. The most explicit that I'm aware of is Aquinas, and he'll say there's different standards of beauty, or not standards, but there's different uh, degrees of beauty among people, not only individuals, but also groups. Same thing with knowledge and virtue and other things. That's all kind of affirmed. So immaturity is not does not mean kind of less in dignity or whatever. It doesn't mean sinful. It just means less maturity. And then you, someone would then work to become a master at some craft. So I think we would then have teaching and there'd be some kind of instruction and learning or take time to master something. And you can master. So this is another important point. So I think that the fact that man is a social being, we know that by nature, by our very constitution, that we we must live with others. Like we must live with others because you cannot live well unless you live with others. You cannot, more than that, you can't even be an individual. So I think this is a really important point. This is how I think individual and the collective nature of man is clearly reconciled, at least with this respect. And that is that you can't become a master at any trade or craft unless you're among others who have, or, who have or are also in pursuit of doing the same. So you can't be a, a master carpenter unless you live among master farmers or master blacksmith or anything like that, because they, they, they contribute to the whole, this particular thing. And if everyone contributes, then you as an individual can receive the benefits of their skills while you pursue the mastery of your own. So you can be an individual in the group, but you're also necessarily tied to that group for your individuality. So there, the idea that the collective and the individual are necessarily opposed to one another is just, is just false. I mean, that's probably a topic for a different time, but I think it's important to, so like the idea of collective and individual are fundamentally opposed is just false. It's more like what, what opposes these things is more like parasitism, like a like parasite. So instead of you being an individual among a collective, you actually just kind of take and don't give. But anyway, that that's a different topic for a different time. Um, all right. So that what this means then is that we would form communities, and from this arises like Aquinas thinks that there would be civil government. We'll get to that in a moment. But I think as we think about forming communities, we have to think about two other aspects of man. And that's his gregariousness and his limitedness. Now, I don't think there is one review that has mentioned that, even though those two aspects of man, they are essential premises for my argument that there be different nations. But everyone just denounces it as speculative. They don't actually take my premises and say it doesn't follow, um, nor do they say it's false. So again, it's just like, oh, let's just dismiss it, dismiss it as speculative. It's kind of lazy. All right, so gregariousness. That just means kind of just being a social animal. Uh, not only that we need fellow man for like our material goods, but we also need man for just enjoy ourselves. So like when I just think of whenever you see something that is like, oh, wow, uh, you want to say, hey, look at that. Like you want to tell, you want to experience the world with others. Okay, there's more to our sociality, soci sociality th than that. Um, but that is, you know, that's just an example. Uh, so we want to be with others, but at the same time, we are limited beings. Now, when I by limited, I mean that I don't think that 
pre-fallen man had like complete knowledge of what everything is, what everyone else on the planet is doing at this moment. They don't have, they don't understand even someone next door. They don't fully understand what intents and purposes they have. I mean, you can assume that it's goodwill and they're doing good, but you still don't, you, you do, you just don't have all the knowledge, but forget the neighbor, think the farther away people halfway around the world, you just don't know what they're up to, what they're doing, which, which means that these communities, I think, would be isolated. I think uh, along these lines, you, uh, you, we would settle in places that are actually habitable. So I think even we would even the cold up in the mountains. I don't think we'd be impervious to cold. We wouldn't be impervious to the desert. We would still require water. Uh, we would to not only drink ourselves but also grow crops to eat and feed animals or you know uh, and to raise animals so there would be in some sense there'd be uh, different communities in different places now some would be larger than others because there's more land um, but i i just i don't think that the fall created deserts i don't think the fall created cold mountains i don't think the call the the, the um i don't think the fall made it so that we wouldn't feel cold up in the top of mount everest or whatever so I, there would be different places where there, there'd be habitable places would be habitable and there'd be different arability of land. And so I think there would be then different peoples, different voices. The point being is that they're somewhat not, not isolated, but separated. Uh, even if they're, you know, even if there's a large kind of continent of people, that continent wouldn't know what's happening on the other side of the world. Or at least they wouldn't readily know what happens on this side of the world. Uh, as the people spread and exercise subdued and dominion on the earth, you would have different groups of families intermarrying, and then they have a rise from that, a people and a nation, uh, I mean, descended by blood, having a connection that way. And I think from all this arises a diversity of cultures. I also think there'd be a diversity of languages. I'll get to that in a moment. There'd be diversity of cultures. And why? Well, because the nature of man does not contain the pure, like the some sort of very specific particular cultural life. Each place's dance style would be different. I mean, you might have your preference on how to dance, but there are different ways to dance. I mean, some you could say are sinful or whatever, but there there are different ways of doing uh, of dancing that are not in themselves sinful that they could practice in different places of the world. The same thing with uh, uh, a preference for clothing, a certain type of music. Um, culinary. I mean, the, the the idea of food would depend on the region and what grows there and what sort of animal life is there. Uh, and so there's all these different factors that that then from each of these communities would arise differences because there isn't a kind of one one world culture. There's not one con connection of different peoples. So just just how how like just how American culture. I mean, there was one so. Uh, couple hundred years ago, but someone said that, that America was pretty much British culture, but exaggerated or something to that effect. But, but there was a, the point was that, okay, it, it, it's kind of a new thing, but yeah, you can see traces of the old British culture within American life this a couple hundred years ago. The point being is that even though there's a, a solid, like clear connection between Britain and America, the experiences of Americans with the frontier, with the wilderness, other aspects of American life created a distinct culture over the span of a 
you know, 100, 150 years, um, that was that was clearly different. That that was noticeable by people like Alexis de Tocqueville. So even my, so, my point is that that is natural because of the different experiences and the, the relative isolation or separation between peoples. Now that that doesn't mean it's bad. That doesn't mean anything degenerated. It doesn't mean that it went from being uh, kind of high and pure to vulgar and bad. It just means that things changed. I mean, there can be similarities, and of course there would have been, um, but the, I think there would have been a diversity of differences. Now, what is this? This means that, again, like the, the nations of our earth, of our planet now, the diversity in itself is actually an expression of human nature as created. It's not an expression of sin. What's interesting is that, that that was controversial, but only a few years ago, diversity was like the biggest thing. It was the hottest thing. Everyone wants to talk about how great diversity is. Um, now, Wolf says it, and it's like all of a sudden it's speculative and bad. But everyone wants to affirm that, yeah, there's something good in itself with diversity. Somehow it's good that the, what is it, the congregation of, of heaven uh, in, in, the, in the eschaton with the different tribes, tongues, and nations. That's good. Look at God saved all these different peoples. Diversity, good. But then Wolf says that would be prelapsarian, and they they think that's all oh, that that can't be. I think that's actually that passage is actually an argument for my position, which is that that would have been the end result no matter what. So if if man had not fallen and completed the covenant of works and attained eternal life by you know the gift of God, there would have been a diversity of nations. And so that actually that the the divert the tribes, tongues, and nations in yes in in as in in revelations in eschatological life is actually not is, is actually what was intended from the beginning that's that's my argument so that is yeah so again it's gregariousness and the uh and the limitedness we're limitedness because we don't have knowledge of everything there's not like sort of this mint i don't know we can't communicate with people through the mind thousands of miles away and we start develop differences. Now, there wouldn't be any hostility, there wouldn't be animosity, but there would be a recognition of difference and also that those differences matter. So you wouldn't want to disrupt one person's nation with foreign customs to a significant degree because those customs have become second nature to someone. They actually become, in a way, who they are. Who you are is not simply human. To be who you are is to be British or to be American or to be German. And those distinct features are not just accessories. They're not just things you can shed off. They've ingrained to your very being because you're designed to receive them. You're designed to be socialized into a way of life such that it becomes inseparable from what and who you are. That's what, that's that, it's not due to the fall that you that children receive customs and that you can't break the habits of customs. Now you can have bad customs, I'm not denying that. I'm saying the, the, rece the, the reception of socialization such that a way of life becomes, sec uh, becomes second nature to you is natural to you as created. That's not a result of the fall. And so that means, and, and also since couple that with, the, with the, the premise, that you were not born with a universal set of particularities what this means then is you're going to receive the customs of your particular place that was generated by your ancestors of that place. And then you receive it through socialization, primarily through your parents and, and the community. Now, I, 
I think all that, if you if you reflect on human nature and you follow the principles that I outlined earlier in, in the chapter, the things that you affirm that are good and you understand human nature itself, that leads me to think think that it's far more likely that as Adam and his progeny spread across the earth, there'd be a diversity of peoples and cultures throughout the earth, and that's by design, and it's for your good. And so this means that in our world today, it's not from the fall that we have difference, and that's actually good. It's actually good to maintain difference. So that's that's my argument for that. One of the things I was attacked for early on, I think I might have already kind of addressed this, but it was the idea that even in the prelapsarian state, that Adam had a heavenly end or like a higher end than just earthly life. Um, I think Brian Matson accused me of being Roman Catholic and some, I think James Lindsay said I was Gnostic, but that guy, he knows, he knows theology real well. What, well, as an aside, related to this, what's frustrating about most of the reviews is that whenever they kind of dismiss a conclusion or premise of mine in the argument, they almost always fail to recognize that my most controversial claims, at least in this chapter or the next, I, I cite people from across the tradition to that who affirm it as well. But they don't mention that. They think, oh, how can you think this? Well, it's like, well, here Calvin said it, Luther said it, Babing said it, <laughs> like everyone said it, and Wolf documented that everyone said it. Uh, but they don't they don't mention that because people are just largely ignorant of what these people actually believed. Uh, what the tradition actually says, and they think that our post-World War II conception of human life is normal, and when it's actually incredibly abnormal. Anyway, back to so the back to the the two ends of man. So I say that there's a heavenly and earthly end. People kind of got hung up on the fact that I said heavenly. They think, oh well, we're meant to live like we're not we're meant to live these corporeal existence, and you shouldn't you shouldn't say heavenly life. I'm just using the language of the tradition. I mean, that's what pe people talked about heaven as the end, the original end of Adam, if he had atta attained it through his work. So I'm just using everyone. Again, it's like people just ignorant of the tradition are are kind of, kind of exploiting. In some way, the reviewers sometimes, not all of them, a few of them seem to be exploiting the ignorance of their readers because pretty much everyone talked like that. Um, that, that, that state of glory is a sort of heavenly so I, this is what, that's what Calvin said. It's what Luther said. It's what Turretin said. So, um, but yeah, uh, uh, most people believe that, but then there's a few people who didn't. So like Thomas Goodwin didn't believe it. Okay. And maybe some of the guys you probably haven't heard of Thomas Goodwin, if you have heard of him, that's good. Um, but he was one guy who thought that the, I, that heavenly life was a fundamentally part of the gospel. It was introduced by the gospel as an end of man. Whereas everyone else, for the most part, believed that heavenly life was actually part of Adam's original end through the covenant of works. Okay, so the promise of the covenant of works was not simply perpetual life on earth, but in a sort of blessed state, a higher state, a state of glory. Uh, I mean, th that's actually really important for my overall systematic argument. I'm not going to go into that why. Maybe I will in a couple chapters, but I just wanted to address that as well. The, the, again, the point is, my, my point is that I, like everyone kind of said it, so I assumed it. And if you remember my previous episode on method, I said that I was going to assume the majority or the received views of the of the Reformed theologians. And so that's what I did. You can disagree with it all day long. I'm not saying you can't. I'm just saying that was part of my method. I stated explicitly up front. And so that's what I did. 
Um, all right, I'll leave that at that. Uh, I talk about natural law and the moral law. I don't think anyone's questioned that so much because that, most people kind of affirm that there was like a, a moral natural law uh, over Adam and his progeny. Yeah, the the real question will probably will be in the next chapter when I address that whether or not like what's the relation of man to to natural law after the fall. But at this point, that's that's I think not controversial as far as I know. Um, now, as I move along, I think I've covered most of stuff. I, I do say that there would be hierarchy in the state of integrity or the prelapsarian state. I don't, I don't know if anyone questioned that. I mean, that that was the belief that there would be some kind of hierarchy. I don't know if I mentioned that Aquinas believed in different degrees of beauty and virtue and knowledge. Uh, Calvin said there would be like there would be superiors, uh, at least with the right individuals. I don't know about any other other than that. Uh, Bavink said that uh, he, he says, and I haven't been able to confirm it, partly because this would be kind of getting into a lot of the commentaries in, in Genesis one two, probably all in Latin. Uh, but he says that the majority position in the reformed among reformed theologians is that that people would eat meat. People would have eaten meat prior to, or in a prelapsarian or a non, in a state of integrity. That means that when you chow down on your steak and you're enjoying it, you're you you're enjoying it not because it's good relative to the fall or something like that, but because it's actually good in itself to eat a steak. <laughs> so you can enjoy that steak. I don't know if anyone anyone has thought that. I, so the vegetarians, the vegetarian Christians are not are not right, but you can enjoy your steak at least according to the Reformed tradition. That also means that there could be hunting, and that requires skill. There could be domestic, uh, like um, domestic raising of cattle or uh, chickens or something, whatever for meat. So all of those things you can think of, if the Reformed tradition is correct, you can think of those things not as a consequence of the fall, but actually a consequence of your very nature and the nature of the world. So enjoy your your meat. Okay. Um, the other one would be so civil government. Would there have been civil government prior to the fall, um, or I should say, in a state of integrity? I argue yes, and some people again think this is weird. But okay, Thomas Aquinas affirmed it. Uh, New England Puritans affirmed it, at least from my checked. The people denied it would be someone like Martin Luther, who really, in denying it, I don't know anywhere where he actually argued for it. He just kind of stated that he disagreed. I understand Augustine didn't believe it, uh, that there would be civil government as well as I understand. Um, I don't know what Calvin thought of that, uh, but it, it is a it is a disputed, it is disputed. And because it's disputed, I didn't just assume it. Uh, I argued for it. I made arguments for it. And the way that I argue for it, I mean, first of all, you should think, like you should think like, why would he, ha like it, having civil government is not about enacting laws and coercing people because they're going to they're going to sin like it's not about restraining sin in a, in a state of integrity of course because there's no sin it's about directing people to their ends uh, it's 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 having a legitimate lawgiver enact law for people to pursue their good now the question is well do they need that to pursue their good can't they do it independent of that and my argument is that no if you have at a certain level of complexity in society you need someone who's going, or you know, someone or some body, like council or whatever, to look to the good of the whole. Because, as I said before, individuals are limited, and you don't always know 
what the each person's you generally don't you don't have privilege access to each individual's purposes ends and what they're doing even your next door neighbor you don't always know what's for their good because you don't always know what they're doing especially in a, in a larger society with greater complexity you can actually hinder people's legitimate sinless activity so take uh, i don't know if there'd be cars in the say in a state of integrity but it's just a good example of this this type of directing so you you can get from point A to point B in driving because the other people on the road are following the same rules. You've probably all seen like a third world traffic jam where no one's following the rules and it's a complete disaster, right? But at least for now in the United States, generally speaking, uh, people follow the traffic rules for the most part. And what that does is that we then all know the rules and it facilitates our activity. I don't need to know where you're going specifically. I only need to know that, okay, you're turning left. I need to go straight or turn right, whatever it is. You follow, if you follow the rules of the road, we can actually, it coordinates our collective action. We all have our own purposes, our own ends. They may not be sinful. Just so let's assume they're all sinless. It coordinates our activity such that we can accomplish what we need to do. And I think in a, in a high com complex society or just a complex society, there needs to be some kind of rules because you simply don't know what is for someone else's good or what they intend to do. And that's why you need it. Another one would be something like, you know, you, you might think, Hey, this river right here, if, if we put a dam on this river, we could, we could, you, we, this could be really good for our community, our town. You may have, you may not know, and you, your intentions might be hundred percent pure. You want the good of your town. But by doing that, you disrupt, say, the fishing or some other thing that's 100 miles, literally 100 miles down the road, that a town you may not even know exists. But so you need then something over those towns in some sense, some sort of agreement of governing such that you, you call it legislation or rules with regard to the river use to secure the common good. Because the, the river is a, is a good, not only for your community, but several other communities. So what's the common good of all those communities? Well, you have to coordinate because immediately, according to your knowledge, this is good for my community. And you have 100%, again, 100% pure thoughts, no intention to hurt anyone, but it would hurt someone or it would diminish the good and the common good overall. So anyway, there'd be, have to be some kind of like, I think, regulation over the river use because it, it, the different people pursuing their good without coordination can actually lead to bad. Same thing with like a military unit where you could have the, the best soldiers in the world, all the best soldiers and, and you, and, and as an individual level, they could be amazing, but for whatever reason, the leadership goes down and no one steps up for leadership. The whole thing could become disarrayed and even the, the weakest army could, could, uh, could defeat you. So Need some kind of a coordination. That's my argument for civil government. Again, it's not me just asserting it. It's me applying the principles I've already, um, I've already established prior and then thinking through it. Okay. Again, and another thing is I, I didn't assume civil government. I actually make arguments for it, which to, to my memory, no one has actually, maybe one kind of tried to deal with the arguments. But anyway, now the one section I will say is a little bit of a speculation is my my view of martial virtue in the pre-fall state so i'll say that there's some speculation here i think there's good reasons but I, i'm less sure about this than the others martial virtue would be militaristic skill so the way i see this is 
all these communities form across the world, but you don't know because of limited knowledge, you don't know if another community might have someone has sinned, right? Not in your community necessarily, but in another community that then developed another civil, uh, another kind of nation that's full of sinners. And what do sinners tend to do? Well, they t- tend to want to conquest. They don't want to. They want to do battle. They want to take and exploit, and um, dominate. Right? That's what they want to do. So it would seem to me, given that possibility that communities would train in some element of martial virtue, that, that is some militaristic fighting skill, just in case, as, as a duty of self-preservation for their community, that they would a- be able to resist in militaristic fashion any peoples that have become sinful. Makes sense to me, but I feel like that is maybe a little bit more of a, a stretch than some of the others. Uh, So the other thing related to this would be masculinity. So I could have talked about this earlier, but I'll talk about this now. Uh, Nowadays, a a typical complementarian, when you ask them something to the effect of, what's what's masculinity for? And they'll say, well, it's to protect your family. That's the one, always protect your family. Uh, So I think that is true. And it's it's especially true within a, a sinful world, of course. I think it could have, you know, along speculative lines, I think it could have also been a good uh, with regard to uh, in the prelapsarian world as well, because you'd want to protect them from sinful people. Uh, but I, my other critique of this is that in the prelap, it's not as if like your masculinity becomes relevant, or your, you know, your muscles and your, your larger size than women, um, your kind of a more aggressive tendencies, like those things are not in themselves a result of the fall, they're actually who you are by design. I think that sometimes our talk of masculinity would lead us to think that the prelapsarian masculinity would be very effeminate and soft, and it wouldn't have the sort of features we think of today, which is this kind of hardness and this assertiveness and this kind of agonistic life, um, desiring some element of struggle. I think there would be, I think that goes into the, the hunting aspect, maybe protecting, but also the subduing and, and exercising dominion over the world, over animals, over the world in general, that involves not just, you know, not just planting a flag in the ground and then picking fruit off the vine, but it involves actual element of, of struggle and, and self-assertion. So I think men in particular need to watch out for this. And pastors talking about men with regard to masculinity, they should re- reinforce the fact that men, in their various faculties and in their various capabilities that's distinctive to them, is not simply your job to, to restrain sin and to p- protect those who are weak, but it's for you to exercise your self assertive dominion in the world. So don't think of yourself as I'm here, like if if I if it wasn't for sin. I wouldn't have a job. I wouldn't be useful. My bicep would be would be irrelevant. That's not that's not true. So I think we need to get away from that kind of thinking. In fact, your masculinity is inter- integral, is essential, and always has been to exercising dominion. And this is as a kind of an aside. This is one reason why I think the the modern two kingdoms and also the Anabaptist perspective, which kind of opposes the dominion mandate essentially feminizes Christian political theology because it renders 
man as a necessary element only within the post-lapsarian world. Whereas if you do the natural thing and affirm that no, when God says subdue, exercise dominion, that that's actually reflected in our very nature as people. It's not some sort of adventitious additional duty. You know, it's not like, oh, create man. Oh, now let's bring out this outside duty for him to do that has, it does somehow disconnected from his actually being or who he is or what he is. No, it's natural to us. If you're a man or just a human being, I think women like this too, but man, men in particular, and you have an urge to exercise dominion over a piece of dirt or with others as a nation over, over the, that land, that's good. That's part of you being a natural human being, natural man. Not a, not a result of sin. It's not some adventitious duty. You exercising dominion is you actually being truly human, being a true man. All right. Um, I think that covers everything I wanted to talk about. Uh, next time we'll be on the chapter two, which chapter two deals with the post-lapsarian, kind of the, the consequences of the fall and how that relates to nature and the way the world became or organized afterwards. Um, and I'll, I'll deal with uh, the uh, Tower of Babel then, okay? I'll, I'll deal. I know people are thinking, what about the Tower of Babel? I'll deal with that um, next time. And then I also deal with the effects of grace. So what, how, what, what are the effects of the fall? And then in what sense does grace restore? And that will complete the, my two chapters on theological slash philosophical anthropology, which serve really as the framework from which I proceed into the rest of the book. All right. Well, thank you for listening, and uh, I'll try to have another one of these next week. Um, I, I should say, and I meant to say earlier, I apologize for not doing uh, this sooner. Uh, I think it's been a month, so terrible. But I was sick for a long time, and I was traveling, and and so. All right. Thanks. I'll uh, thanks for listening. I'll try to put one of these, another one of these out soon.